All right, ladies and gentlemen, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, but let me give you a little bit of context first. Go and advance the first slide here. Okay, so what I, I want to give you a little bit of direction. I always like to kind of plant the seed for application first. I want you to consider what motivates you to encourage somebody to keep going. So you think you're, you're coming alongside somebody, you want to encourage them, you want to motivate them, uh, you want to exhort them, push them, help them endure, help them persevere. What, what motivates you to do that? And what do you share in those moments, right? So I want you to think in terms of an athletic scenario first. Think back to your last athletic scenario where maybe you finished a drill or something first and you're trying to encourage your teammates to finish well. Uh, so we're going to look at how does Paul encourage this church, all right? So let me give you a little bit of context. We have to go back to Acts chapter 17. When Paul arrives in Thessalonica, he goes right to the synagogue. He often goes there first. He spends about three weeks in Thessalonica, and he's trying to share Christ, share the gospel, and many people come to Christ, some Jews, some Gentiles. The Jewish leadership, they're not excited about this. I mean, they are, they really go into the attack mode. They go, basically, they go down to the local market, hire some riffraff, and they create this big riot, public riot. It gets so intense, public officials get involved, and their solution is to take, send Paul and his team away. And so Paul and his team leave, and while he's away, he's burdened. He spent less than a month in Thessalonica. A number of people come to Christ. So while he's away, he sends Timothy to go see how they're doing in hopes that he can encourage him. He tells us in this letter that he wanted Timothy to go and establish them, right? Continue the discipleship ministry to get them established. So Timothy goes for a while and he comes back and Paul hears the testimony of the Thessalonians. And guess what? They're thriving. They're thriving in the midst of affliction and opposition. So the affliction didn't let up. Lots of opposition, lots of affliction. And it, it turns out that he actually hears about their testimony from other areas from Macedonia as well. And that's what pens this letter. So let me just point out a couple things in chapter one to give you a little bit of idea of the, the tone. Because this is like one of the few letters, maybe the only where he's not actually correcting anything in the church. He spent less than a month there. And so his, his heart is, he's overwhelmed, he's praising God, God's amazing, the power of the gospel has the ability to change people's lives, to advance the gospel through them, even though Paul wasn't there. And so he is just rejoicing. So what do you, what do you tell a church that's thriving in the midst of opposition and affliction? He says, keep going. But he gives some purpose behind that encouragement, and that's what I want you to see today. And, and, and it'll shape how not only how we live with purpose, but how we encourage and exhort others to do the same. I just want to highlight a couple things in chapter 1 before we get into our text. Look at chapter 1. It says, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, con constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father Notice these three things here, work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. So a couple thoughts here. Thought number one, the faith, the hope, 
and the love produced something. The way to read this or think about it is the faith produced work. Love led to a labor. And there was a hope that led to a perseverance. So the spiritual reality that is gifted to them in Christ existed first, and that produced the fruit and the evidence of that life of Christ in them. And that's what Paul is like, I can, we know God has chosen you. It's evident. And we saw, we see, we hear the power of the gospel. Jump down to verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That phrase is important. So I'm highlighting these two things with intention because you're going to see them come up again in chapter 5. Okay, so it's important to remember, as believers, you are going to be delivered from the wrath to come. All right? So go to chapter 4. So he spends, he, he kind of narrates the first couple chapters. And, there, and, and Thessalonians is kind of broken up with three prayers. And we get to chapter 4, and he starts exhorting with practical application. But one of the things that sticks out to us in this letter, he, he often says, for you know. So he's, he's really just reminding and encouraging them, even though he only spent a month, and whatever they learn from Timothy, he highlights, listen, I know you know this. Keep going. So we get into some of the practical side of things in chapter 4, verses 13. It seems like many scholars seem to think that there was a concern with them, not anything that needed correction, but there was a concern. What about believers who, who die before Christ comes back. What happens with them? So he addresses that with this teaching on the rapture here from verses 13 through 18. And then we get into chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons. So a couple things here. Number one, now concerning is a, a transition. He says, okay, let me address this concern that you have. All right? So does that give you a little bit of a flavor of the letter here? All right, so let's get into, here's the big idea that I want you to walk away with today. Knowing the hope, and I mean knowing, believing, trusting with conviction. Knowing the hope we have in Christ, we must urge and exhort each other to keep living out our identity in Christ. So it's twofold. The, the knowledge of, his, of the hope we have. I'm gonna be rescued from the wrath to come. Knowing my hope in Christ, it's going to urge and call me to live out my faith in Christ and also call others to do the same, okay? So really, this, this section, simple outline, three, three parts, verses 1 through 5, here's what the Thessalonians know. He's going he's gonna to address that. You'll see that here in a minute. He's, he's going to identify a couple things. Here's what you know, and then he's going to give us the inferred, implicated, application, here's what we do with this knowledge. Verses 6 through 10. and verse 11, he's going to kind of put the bow on the present here. So, okay, now, here's the conclusion. This is what we have to do. All right? So notice again, I'm being careful to emphasize, if you joined us yesterday, to emphasize that an important reality, and that's the doing is a fruit 
of the spiritual reality of Christ within us. The root of Christ in us produces a fruit consistent with the nature of who Jesus Christ is. So let's look at the first point together. What did the Thessalonians know? Read verses one through five with me, okay? Verse one, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Important phrase there. And they, not you, and they will not escape. Verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Verse 5, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So what did they know? They knew the times and the seasons, meaning what? They had an understanding of God's timetable of events. The second coming of Christ, uh, the day of the Lord is something that's taught and seen in the Old Testament. Obviously, Paul, in his first visit in Timothy and the follow-up visit, there's a lot of teaching of doctrine taking place there. Number two, they also understood the nature of that second coming of Christ. Look at it there in verse two. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will what? Come like a thief. What does that mean? It's unexpected and it's unwelcomed, okay? But this is something that we welcome. So he's, he's addressing something here, but they know this. And the third point here is what? Description of the occurrence of the second coming and those subject to wrath there in verse three. Verse three reads, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, okay? So, I'm a dad, all right, so I wanna, I wanna be discreet here, but um, I watched my wife, uh, I was, how do I say this discreetly? I assisted my wife in giving birth to our children. That still isn't much better. I just know when the, the birth pains started, it was time to go to the hospital. Okay, and my wife was one of those, like, she wanted to wait to the last minute. She didn't want to get to the hospital and just pace. Okay, so I'm, pa I'm the one pacing around the house. I'm like, don't you think we should go? <laughs> it's time, right? The second thing about labor pains is it gets more intense. And it, th th they get more frequent. And guess what? When it starts, you know you're close. It's going to happen. There's an end. There's a finish to this, right? So he's using that to help us understand that these, the wrath of God that's poured out on those who are here during the tribulation period, those labor pains, the judgments that God's using to turn people back to him, poured out on people here that believers will not be here initially, they get more frequent and they get more intense and then there's a finish line. And guess what? They knew these things. They understood them, all right? And guess what? Those that are here, they, Paul's being careful to reference those non-believers, they will not escape, all right? So as compared to whom? Believers, all right? So this is what they knew in these first three verses, but notice in verse four and verse five. So it starts with the word but. So this is a logical 
we're contrasting as compared to those who will be here, the Thessalonians will not be. So why will the Thessalonians not be subject to the surprise occurrence of the second coming's wrath? Look at verse 4 and 5. But you, as compared to they, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you, believers of Thessalonica, are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night. We are not of darkness. So what is he interesting here? What does he do? He's referencing their identity. And there's, there's emphasis here. He gives, the, he gives the positive twice and he gives the negative twice. Twice he says, you're not of darkness. So he's using that to refer to those who don't know Christ as their Savior. But he's saying to them, you Thessalonian believers, you're children of the light. You're of the day. So he's using it as a metaphor to distinguish a very clear identity difference. What is darkness? It's the absence of light. So unbelievers lack the life of Christ within them, right? That's their identity. So this is what they know. So what do we conclude from the first five verses? It's like, okay, Paul, where are you going with this? So if this is what they knew, he's calling them to remember it's because of who you are in Christ that they're going to escape this wrath to come. And remember, I, I, this is a theme in, one, in 1 Thessalonians. I read that in chapter 1. We are saved from the wrath to come. So he's reminding them and encouraging them. All right? So think about this. Put, put yourself in that context. There's intense affliction, intense opposition, something that maybe there might have been some martyrs, and that's why they were wondering, what about those believers who just died? So this is pretty intense, and it's ongoing, even after Paul's been away for a while. And he's saying back to this encouragement. How is he encouraging them? He's reminding them of the hope that we have as believers. Christ is coming back. They understood that. But they're significant because it's not just, oh, great. It, it didn't lead them to be inactive in their faith. Okay? But there's, there's also something else here. Turn to chapter 3. I want you to see Paul's burden for them. It's amazing as you, as you spend time in these letters, Paul genuinely loved the church. Chapter 3, verse 2 and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to do what? Here's purpose. Here's why, here's why Paul sent Timothy. He wanted to establish them. They're new believers. He wanted to establish them and exhort them in their faith. And here's a purpose statement here, verse 3, that no one be moved by these afflictions. This is a really cool word. How many of you have a dog? Okay. So everybody knows this illustration or you've heard it before, right? You can have a terrible day, right? And you're kind of slouching as you walk through the front door. Maybe you've you got your grouchy pants on. And what does the dog do? You know, it comes up, the, the, the tail's wagging, right? The dog's excited to see you. And all of a sudden, you go from Captain Grouchy Pants to, oh, oh, hey, Spot, come here. Oh, yeah. You know, you let it lick your face and... You know, and he still kicked the cat anyway, just to get out of the way. But you're enjoying your dog, right? That's what this idea, the word moved, means. It means that it's like the wagging of the tail that all of a sudden moves your emotion. And so Paul, 
There's a lot of application here. Paul's concern that in the midst of affliction, he's using a positive thing because he's concerned that even something positive, let's say sympathy, might move them away from their faithfulness to Christ. I wrestled with this. I studied this. I read books on it. This, is, this was really challenging to me personally. Who doesn't love just coming alongside somebody? It's okay. Bring it in. It's okay. Come on. Get it out. Let's get those tears out. It's okay. It's, I love you, man. Let's do this. We all love that, and we all should do it. But we have to temper that here with Paul's concern. Even something positive like that could move and encourage somebody to change emotion. It's like, even that, don't let that move us away from our faithfulness in Christ. Study it, okay? Don't take my word for it. So Paul's burden for them. He wants them to be established, exhorted, and he wants them to continue. Why? Because what's going on? In the midst of this affliction and opposition, they're thriving. And really, I should be careful here, it's not like there's something special. I want to elevate your faith and your vision to see what? God's doing an amazing work. It's the power of the gospel in the midst of opposition and affliction that's changing people's lives and it's producing a love, even to the point of like how they received Paul and Timothy was such love and, and respect and appreciation, their testimony went out in all of Macedonia, and the word gets back to Paul. And his heart is thrilled again, not because the Thessalonians are something special, because Paul knows this is the supernatural work of the gospel of Jesus Christ and these believers. That gives me tremendous hope and encouragement. Okay, back over to chapter five. So Paul's burdened. He wants them to be established, he's encouraging them, and he's reminding them of something they already know, and that's what? Believers have a hope to be rescued from the wrath to come, okay? Okay, Paul, now what? So what would be the logical application? Paul infers from this. Where does he go next with this? Look at verse six. Verse six reads, so then, that's an important phrase there, the idea is like, okay, in light of this, Okay. Now that you've called to memory your understanding of this, here's where he goes next. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Okay, calls them to do two things. So in light of what they know, believers will be saved from the wrath to come. He calls them, listen, we can't sleep. We have to stay awake. We have to be sober. Side note, how he's using sleeping and staying awake is different here than how he used it in chapter four, okay? It's an important distinction. Chapter four, he's referring to those who have gone to sleep, who died in Christ. That's not how he's using it right here in this verse. Here he's literally talking about the slum, spiritual slumber. So he calls them, stay awake, don't fall asleep, be sober, all right? So both of these indicate ongoing, continuous Continuous present action. It's a state of being. It's a spiritual reality that should be ongoing. No, it's not a to-do list. This is a spiritual awareness. He's calling us to be spiritually aware of the reality of my heart. So think for a minute. 
Okay, as a believer, I know I have a future hope. Christ is going to return. I'm going to be saved from the wrath to come. I know that God wants to advance the gospel in me and through me. In light of this great hope, Paul's calling me through this text, I got to stay awake. I got to be sober. I had this odd job one time. My mom was a program manager at an ammunition plant. It was really cool. She oversaw the government contracts of building ammunition for, for tanks and stuff around the country. And so there was this deal where we had this underground bunker where they had barrels of ammunition and weaponry, and it was underground. And the whoever military in the company was going to show up the next day load up this ammunition and haul it away. But it was during the winter and it was in an underground bunker and it was insulated with packaging that had water in it. And they hired me to bring in a space heater and record the temperature every hour throughout the night to make sure the temperature wouldn't fall below freezing because if it did, the water would freeze, potentially ruin the insulation, possibly create friction and cause the ammunition to ignite. Okay, anybody want to sign up to do that? It paid really good though. It was just one night. I was like, I'm in, challenge accepted. So I brought a lot of space heaters that night, but I had to stay awake. So I have to be alert and stay awake, <laughs> keep my eye on the temperature. Paul's doing the same thing here. You have to stay engaged, keep your eye on the temperature of your heart. All right, hang with me here, look where he goes. So. First, let's talk about sobriety. So this staying awake, being sober, carries with it. We have to avoid this sluggishness, being dulled, or having our senses dulled, getting really sleepy, confused, unsusceptible, and undiscerning of spiritual realities. Right? Think about it. If any of you have ever done a diet and you get really committed and like, you start paying attention to things, what? Pepsi's got high fructose corn syrup in it. Are you kidding me? Oh, this, I'm done with this. Right? You start paying attention to things. You start looking for ingredients and calories and timing of when you do things. So you're, you're, you're trying to stay alert. You're trying to be discerning. But you've got to do that of your, of your heart. Okay? So hold that thought for a minute. Okay, now, Paul's going to give a reason for this. Right? He's going to give a reason for this. So look at verse 7, 1 Thessalonians verse 5, chapter 5, verse 7. For those who sleep, so he's, he's giving a clarifying statement here to verse 6. He's calling us to stay awake, be sober. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. So what is he doing here? He's referencing their identity. Basically, here's what he's saying. Listen, you're of the day. You shouldn't be sleeping. You shouldn't be getting drunk. If you were of the night, in other words, if you were unsaved, that would be expected. That's your nature. That's who you are. But since you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of God living within you, you should stay awake. You should be alert. You should avoid getting drunk. You should be alert and stay sober, right? So look at verse 8, okay? He's continuing with this reason. So he contrasts with those who are of the night, those who are of the darkness, and he refers to believers here in verse eight, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. 
Okay? Let us be sober. So what are we, what are we to do? Be sober. I, I, I'm struck by this. It's just, I didn't see this coming. I, my mindset is like, okay, Christ is coming back. I think, put the accelerator down. Let's get after it. Let's go. Let's work. And Paul says, slow down. Be sober first. Okay? And that, again, sobriety is just this alertness that leads to self-control. So it calls us to be alert. So we got to be discerning within and without. So it's interesting here. I'm sure you've heard God's more interested in who you are than what you do. So as a believer, Paul here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is putting a priority on the present reality of your heart. We need to do the same. The hope of the future believers have is going to create a motivation and an accountability and it brings to light my purpose to live out my faith. Priority 1A is to be sober, to discern your own heart. What's going on within, what's going on out here. All right? Notice I made that reference earlier to chapter 3, right? Paul's burden to be established, to be exhorted, urged, encouraged, taught, instructed, corrected, and thirdly, so that they wouldn't be moved. Remember, there's intense affliction occurring. Okay, so how do we live in sobriety? I'm glad you asked. Look what it says next. It says, let me read verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having, he's telling us how to do this, having put on the breastplate of what? Faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Okay, now listen. Don't get too caught up here and don't read too much into these metaphors, all right? That's gonna be a rabbit trail that may not be really helpful. That's why I went to chapter one first, right? The evidence that God chose them and the power of the gospel is a reality in these believers is because the faith produced something. Their, their hope produced something. This love they had from God produced something in the midst of affliction, and he's telling us to put these on. And it's, it's like clothing language. It's like if somebody came up to me and said, Fritz, you got a terrible stain on your shirt. <gasps> oh, my word, I do. Yeah, I should change shirts. So I take this one off, put on a better one, right? We are to wear outwardly what's true of me inwardly. So that's why I have to be alert to my heart. What's going on in my heart is going to reveal itself in public, all right? So this faith, hope, and love are spiritual realities you have as a believer as a result of the Spirit of God within you. Power of the gospel has the ability to produce these things publicly through your lives. And he gives this armor as a means of to show us that it's a means of protection as well. And notice, what's the basis of this? How did we get this? Look where it goes next. Verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. I love that word. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's the future salvation here. Right? Remember, there's different tenses to this. He's referring to that future salvation for God's not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 10, 
who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Okay, so notice verse 10. Paul's a realist. He knows some, I think you can apply this both ways. He knows some Christians are going to be sluggish, fall into a slumber. Guess what? They're still going to live with him, right? But he wants us to live with him now and in the future. And the result of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you've been redeemed. And you've been given a new nature in Christ. Okay? So, let's back up, get perspective a little bit. First five verses, he reminds them of, hey, since you are a believer, the new identity in Christ, you have a hope in this future salvation in Christ's return. And he calls us to live soberly first. So in light of all this, what are we to do? Look at verse 11. Therefore, in light of all of this, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Since you have been destined to a future salvation, rescued from the wrath of God, to live with Christ brother, he's the object of our hope. The implied application is to do two things with each other. Encourage one another. And, th and this is a, it's to build courage in somebody else. I think we're a little too soft on our encouragement. We, we tend to think sympathy and empathy. But it's, it's stronger than that. It's actually, it pushes a little bit. And it should, right? Because you, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So the idea here is to urge, exhort. There's a little bit of urgency here. And secondly is to build one another up. And the idea here is to strengthen, strengthen each other to live more faithfully. All right, so think about this. I asked you at the beginning, what motivates you to encourage somebody to keep going, to keep persevering? And what do you say to them? What this text does is it changes that. Okay, it changes that. Here's what it does. Here's, here's how I'm applying it. I'm reminding myself, regardless of the affliction that I might face, as a believer, I have a hope in the return of Christ. I'm not gonna be left behind. Whatever, whatever happens down here is the worse it gets. Okay. And because I have a hope in Christ, I need to live out my identity. How do I do that, Paul? I'm glad you asked. Fritz, you gotta be alert to your heart. And you gotta live by faith. And as you're being faithful with being sober and alert and self-controlled and living by faith, letting that faith produce the life of Christ to be seen before others, you need to call others to do it with you, which is beautiful. Who wants to do this alone? Not me. We need to exhort one another to do this. So let's purpose to urge and strengthen each other to live more faithfully in Christ by what? Live out your identity by being sober and alert, by faith, and calling others to do the same. The end is near. In light of that day, this is how I should live today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that your spirit would use this letter that's inspired, that's a revelation of you. And what we see today is, yes, we have this, we, we see grace, we see mercy. You've rescued us from a wrath to come, and you've gifted to us a life and a hope that we didn't deserve or earn. 
But God, we also see the power of the gospel has the ability to change us and enable it to, an enablement to live by faith and hope and love that can be effectual, that's gonna bear the evidence of that out. But God, I'm challenged to be more alert to my heart and to live more faithfully and to grab others to do it with me. Use this that we might live faithfully for the cause of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.